Thanks, Daniel. Let's, uh, let's pray briefly. Father, would you give us your spirit to open our eyes to see the glory of Christ in this passage. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Yeah, I'm sure at one point in your life you've gone into a movie that you've been late, maybe partway through, halfway through, and it's very, very difficult to understand the movie, but you're trying to figure out you haven't seen the events, you haven't seen what preceded where you entered it, you don't know the characters, you're tempted to ask somebody who's that and how that happened and why'd they say that. It's very difficult to understand the movie unless someone explains to you what happened before you entered the the movie. And, and it's kind of analogous to Christmas. A lot of times we try to look at Christmas and we say, we focus on Jesus and this coming, and we don't understand what precedes the coming of Christ. We don't really understand what has happened in the story before Christ came. So I want to explain that. Just briefly to remind you of, you know, otherwise we can't understand how Christmas fits into this overall scheme of God, God's intersection with this world. So just for a minute with me, consider the beginning, all the way in the beginning of the Scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing but God. God speaks all things into existence out of his word. The glory of the heavens shown creates the birds, the animals, man and woman. He's given man and woman capacities and capabilities and responsibilities that are incredible. They're to steward the garden. They're to develop it. They're to protect it. They're to rule it. They're to bring it to its fullest potential. It it was a relationship with God that was harmonious and beautiful. There was no conflict between man and God. There's no conflict within the marital union. There was no conflict between man and woman in nature. It was perfect. It was glorious. That's the way the story began. It was a great story. You would have seen it, and you would have said the same thing. It's all very good. I can find nothing wrong with this. It's beautiful. But the story takes a sharp left turn very quickly, almost out of the gate. The man and the woman, they're not satisfied being like God. They want to be God. They're not satisfied stewarding creation. They want to own creation. And according to the word of God, so came judgment. And when judgment came, pain, toil, suffering. It's what I call the human dilemma all the problems that we struggle with. It's through the pages of Scripture. I mean, you can read it from Genesis 4 on. You see murder. You see incest, adultery. You see all these issues, these social issues that are still with us now enter this world. I mean, misery. I mean, it is a catalog of misery. God sent priests and prophets and kings, but to no avail. You know, it's like we were Humpty Dumpty. We kind of sat on the wall. We had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men. Couldn't put Humpty Humpty Dumpty back together again. I mean, it was that bad. So what would God do? Got a story. Started out great. It went left fast. We're in this sea of misery right now. What's God going to do? Is it just going to end in failure? Is it going to end this way? I mean, God started it great. It went wrong. So what do we do? Here's the incredible news. All the way back in Genesis, there was a promise made that God's going to redeem what we ruined. God is going to bring about a deliverer, a savior, a king, one to redeem, one to change everything back to the way it was supposed to be. 
That's where Christmas fits in. That's where the Matthew passage fits in. This coming of a child, that is God's plan to bring about this child into this world to redeem it. Notice the simplicity with which Matthew teaches the story. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. I mean, it's said in very simplistic ways. Now, if you were Joseph at the time, can you imagine what he was facing? Okay, you're pregnant, and you haven't slept with a man. She says, no, it was the Holy Spirit overshadowed me and conceived this child within my womb. So he's a righteous man, we read in Scripture, but although we don't read it, I imagine he was a bewildered man trying to figure out how this occurs. So God sends an angel, and the angel communicates to him that, in fact, it has been conceived in the Spirit, by the Spirit. Matthew wants us to see, both his generation and all those following, Matthew wants us to see this is a unique child. Again, going back to creation, God made a promise, a deliverer would come, here's a unique deliverer. There is no human father. There is no normal human procreation. This is simply God moving unilaterally. What he is intending us to see is just in creation how God created all things out of nothing. The Spirit hovering over the waters, and God brings forth life. So now the Spirit hovers over Mary and brings forth life. It's a recreation that he brings forth Christ. This child is God in the flesh. That's why he references Isaiah, the promise that a virgin will give birth to a son. And his name would be God with us. That God is now dwelling with us. God is now intersecting our world to bring about a solution to the problem that we have caused with sin. And it's incredible. The angel offers no biological, no technical explanation of how this incarnation works. He just references Scripture. An angel in heaven says it was written, and it's come to be. That's all he says for a defense of the incarnation. Of course, there's more. This Jesus is also fully man. If you read the first 17 verses in Matthew, you'd find that he was a son of David. He's a son of Abraham. He's the son of Adam. He is fully God, fully man. It's absolutely remarkable. That is God's means of deliverance from the human misery that we've lived in. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon writes about this incarnation. He says, infinite and an infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms, king of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph, heir of all things, and yet the carpenter's despised son. Oh, the wonder of Christmas. It's incredible. You know, there are a lot of people that don't believe in the virgin birth. We live in an age of science. And if it's not testable, if it's not observable, if it's not repeatable, then we say don't believe it. And when you think about it, isn't that the point? You know, C.S. Lewis had a conversation once in his office. It was during Christmas time. There were some carolers outside of his windows, and they were singing songs, and some of the songs were about the virgin birth of Christ, as we've been singing. And so a colleague who was a non-Christian walks into the office and says, isn't it good that we now know better than they? And so 
And so Lewis says to him in response, what do you mean? He says, isn't it good that we now know better than they did? And Lewis says, you have to explain what you're saying to me. And he says, isn't it good that we now know better than they did, that virgins don't have children? And he says, he looks at him incredulously, and he says, don't you think they knew that? I mean, don't you think it was a surprise? Isn't that the point? If God's going to blast into our world, is he going to do it in an observable, testable, normal, repeatable manner? This is the creator of the universe bringing forth the sun into this world to save us? Of course it's going to be unique. Of course it demands faith. But not only has Christ come with a unique nature, he's come with a unique purpose. If you remember what Daniel was reading, when the angel says to Joseph, you'll name him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. There was an express purpose to Jesus Christ's coming. It wasn't simply to make us better people. It wasn't simply to show us, give us a better education on how to live this life. He came to save us from our sins. Again, I want you to think back to Genesis. Jesus Christ is, thank God, saving us from our individual sins. He's cleansing us from the guilt of our sin. He's saving us from the penalty of sin by dying for us. He is releasing us from the dominion of sin by giving us the Spirit. But Jesus came to not just save our sins, but to redeem sin, to save that curse. As That's why John Wesley enjoyed the world, as far as the curse is found. He bears the curse. Think back to Genesis. When sin entered our world, so came alienation with God, frustration, conflict, murder, all these ills. He came to reverse those. He came to undo those. He came to save sinners. That's why Paul writes to Timothy. He says, here's a trustworthy saying which deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Now, of course, we still live with these ills, don't we? We still die. We still have conflict. We still struggle. But for the believer, you begin to see that change. It's the falling of the ice age. When Carol and I have conflict, we now repent. We now look to the gospel for forgiveness. We look forward. Things change in the believer's life. Individually, it's changing. And then tomorrow morning, Nick is going to share with us out of Revelation 22 how all things will fully change. Consummation of all things. The fulfillment of God's entire plan. But I want you to hear the whole story. This creation of God, good, perfect, beautiful. The fall of man, choosing his own way. The Redeemer comes as a child grows up, dies, suffers, dies, and is raised. And then, of course, is glorified. And now we wait for that day. But I want to give you three thoughts just to consider tonight. on what, If this is true, at least. Number one, it's going to challenge or it's going to change your view of Jesus. Jesus, in marketing terms, is kind of cool today. Everybody likes Jesus. He has great leadership principles. He just is cool. He is. He kind of dresses cool. He dresses like an emergent preacher. He's just cool. Mormons, Muslims, JWs, they'll all throw a bone to him and say he's a teacher. He's a moralist. He's a prophet. We don't have that flexibility with this text. This demands, we say, no, he is radically unique. He alone is God's answer to his promises. He alone is the one that can crush the head of the serpent. 
He alone is the son of Abraham who will bless the nations. He alone is the son of David who will reign over a kingdom forever. He alone is the second Adam that has borne the curse that we might be free. He alone is the, are these things. And here's the issue for us tonight. You cannot say, especially to the non-Christian, you can't say, I believe in God, not sure about Jesus. They rise and fall together. You know, Jesus said very clearly in John 5, 23, he says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Your destiny hangs on what you think of Christ. I mean, it hangs on that. There is no other promise. Jesus is the Savior. He is the one that God has sent to redeem all. I mean, that, that is startling. So what do you think of Christ tonight? The Christian thinks of Christ that he is the only one. He is the only way. He is unique. We need him desperately. We thank God that he has sent him. But the second thing I want you to think about is that it challenges the way we think about ourselves. In other words, if it's true that Jesus came to save us from our sins, then perhaps we ought not think so highly of ourselves. Now, I know if I were to ask any of you that if you're perfect, you would quickly say, oh, no, 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 I'm not perfect. No, 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 I, I, I commit sins. Now, we would quickly justify that by saying, well, nobody's perfect, really. So, of course, we'd stand up quickly and admit that we're not perfect, but we then quickly say that nobody's perfect. Few of us would stand up with deliberateness and say, my imperfections are so great that I need a Savior. That, that, that I am such a spiritual leper, I need to be saved. This is the rub of the gospel. This is why it's a struggle for people to believe. Because really what you're saying is that there is no way, even with grace, there's no way I can help in this salvation project. I'm absolutely without help. Many of us are are religious people here, and you probably practice your religion with a degree of faithfulness. And it's hard for you to believe that you are in desperate need of being saved by Christ from your sins. I mean, you sit there and think, yeah, I'm not that bad, Tom. I mean, really, I I go to church. I haven't committed adultery. I've been faithful to my wife. I go to church, I I do ministry, and you just cannot believe that God would look upon you and say, you are without hope, save the Son. And that's why Jesus has come, to save us from our sins. This is why Jesus uses, uses the expression, you must be born again. In other words, that same recreation of Christ, now we're recreated. That's why he says, no one will see the kingdom of God unless he be born again. We must be saved from our sins. That's why he came. Now, the Christian doesn't have a problem admitting that. The Christian can say, absolutely. I mean, I'm without hope, save Christ. The non-Christian or the religious is going to fight for a place in the salvation project. I'm participating with God. I'm helping it along. God helps those who help themselves. Michael Horton, a current theologian, writes this. He says, To the extent that we remain pilgrims in this life, the gospel will remain strange even to the believer. Until the day we die, we will struggle to believe the bad news and the good news that God announces to us. 
We don't just naturally think that we're born in sin, spiritually dead, helpless, unable to lift a finger to save ourselves or impress a holy God. As a result, it does not just occur to us that our greatest need is to be redeemed, justified, regenerated, sanctified, and glorified by God's saving work in his Son and his Spirit. Again, the Christian will admit this. The non-Christian will fight you on this. And then the last thing I would ask you to think about that I think Christmas challenges us in is our view of history. You know, when you think, so I was raised in the 70s and 80s, and back then it was kind of the fear that somebody would press the button on a nuclear missile and start World War III. That was the big fear, you know, that it, we lived on the edge and that if anybody did anything wrong, a political move, a military move, boom, everything could erupt and it could be the end of everything. Well, as I look at this, I realize, no, that's not true. I mean, God is sovereignly guiding this world. I mean, 800 years before Jesus was born, he says, no, a virgin will have a child, and this child will be God with you. God governs the path of his universe. But now, with the coming of Christ, it is the final stake in the ground. In a way, history has ended. There is nothing more to come from God except the return of Christ. This earth is not, you know, we've got all kinds of unrest in the Middle East spreading into Russia. This world is not teetering precariously, randomly on the edge of destruction. This world is going to be guided along by the creator of the universe who's brought forth a son who's redeemed a people. And he's going to delay as people are gathered into his kingdom. And then on the day that he is appointed, the son will return in judgment, in power, in glory because of Christmas. Remember, in the last days, the scripture tells us he has spoken to us in his son. In other words, that's the last speech from God is the word of Christ. There is no more. We need no more. The son has spoken. He's now seated and reigning at the right hand of God. So now we wait in joyful anticipation of our long-expected king to come and establish his reign. This is the glory of Christmas, that this stake has been driven in the ground. There'll be nothing more other than Christ coming back to reclaim his own. Now, folks, you're going to leave here, and some of you may just deny this. I mean, you may just write it off and say, this guy's been duped. It's a fairy tale. It's nice, justifies buying presents for everybody. You may walk out of here and deny it. That may be true, and you're going to try to have a great time with the food and the fun that you have ahead. I pray that God would just not let you do that and would override your desires. Some of you may disregard this. You may just kind of think, consider it's nice you get on with life and things are going to press on and you'll forget about it. I would, I would remind you that you are responsible for what you know, and now you know. Others, I trust, will delight in this. And tonight will not simply be about gifts and family, although those are blessings of God and to be enjoyed. But you will delight in the reality that one has come from God to undo the human dilemma that has saved us from our sins, that has established in motion a kingdom that is growing as we speak and that will be consummated as return. I pray that you'll delight in that. I pray that you'll find sweet joy in knowing that Christ reigns right now and that we're not just looking back celebrating his birth, but we're looking forward celebrating his return in glory. And then you will see God face to face and it will be a restoration to the way it was and a completion of the story. 
So pray with me, if you will. Father God, I do thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy to us in Jesus. Father, we say thank you, and we admit that we don't fully understand all that he has done for us. Father, would you open the eyes of the blind here tonight to see the glory of Christ in Christmas, both in his coming to save and in his final coming to consummate all things. Father, for those of us who are yours, I pray that you would stir within us and increase joy and satisfaction in Christ. Father, for those that are going to be struggling tonight, loneliness, despair, conflict, may hope be found in Christ and him alone. Father, would you visit them with power through, through your gracious spirit, moving them to enjoy Christ, that they would be looking for that city of, of whose foundations will never be shaken. Father, would you be glorified in your people tonight? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.